All right, that sort of makes you want to dance, but we're not allowed to dance, so I guess we couldn't do that. But what a great song. Thank you for that. Um, I believe that kids are, the kids that are in the room are going to leave the room, and uh, some you and Andrea will be taking them. Uh, so just follow your leader. Uh, good biblical concept. All right. And the rest of us here in the room, and those of you online, hello out there, in the online world, uh, glad that you've joined us. And what we've been doing, if you've been joining us over the last, or if you're perhaps just joining us for the first time in a while, we've been doing an overview. Uh, well, we're in a year of biblical literacy and trying to just pay more attention to how we read scripture and the story it tells. So we looked at sort of the, the large, uh, what, what I call the story of God, the large narrative arc of creation, fall, God's redemption story, and then that story moving toward new creation. And now we're diving into the redemption story, which is told in three large parts, the story of Israel, uh, the story of Jesus, and the story of the church. And we're just finishing up here the story of Israel. And we've been doing an overview. Uh, so we really just touched on the highest possible points on the story. We've talked about Abraham and how Abraham was called to be a blessing and become a blessing to all nations. And then as you, if you were to read the story, uh, Abraham's family is, eventually becomes the Israelite people, but they find themselves in slavery in Egypt, and God rescues them. We talked about the Exodus story, and, and, and that's a high point in the Old Testament. As God rescues his people out of slavery, they enter into the wilderness where God establishes a covenant. We talked about covenant and God establishing this relationship with his people, calling them to be a new and different people. And then uh, the people then, after some more time in the wilderness, end up entering the promised land and the conquest. And we spent a little bit of time last week just trying to sort out how to read those stories because they're difficult stories, parts of it, uh, for us as North Americans to read. Today we're just finishing up the story of Israel. There's obviously all kinds of stories we haven't told um, as you read these, but we're just giving you an overview of how the story flows. And so the last part of that story, the, the sort of the big overview story, is now that Israel has entered the promised land, what kind of kingdom, what kind of nation will they be? They're called to be a nation with God as king. But as you read the story, and, and so I... The invitation to read is there's a, a Bible reading plan attached to this preaching series. If you haven't linked into it, I have updated the plan this week to attach dates to it because people were like, what week are we on again? And I get it, it's confusing. So we're week nine, I believe. But anyway, there's dates attached to it. So if you haven't jumped into the reading plan, you still can. It's a 40-week plan, so we're about quarter way through, not quite. And you'll start reading in the book of 1 Samuel now. Um, if you link it to the dates. And uh, I did you a bit of a favor in that I didn't get you to read a lot of Judges, because that is really grim. Um, I don't love those stories. But really the point of Judges comes out in the very last verse, which is that Israel had no king. And they all decided to do whatever they wanted, whatever they saw fit. And what they saw fit was pretty horrific, actually, in places. And so we move into um, the book of Samuel, and then we'll get into the books of Kings. And again, just an overview, what plays out here is the Israelites ask for a king. And I just want to pick up this 
part of the story from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, So they've been in the land for a while, and uh, they've been ruled by judges, and there's a whole cycle of of that, and and like I said, it's pretty pretty bad. And so they now uh, come before Samuel, the prophet. Let me pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders, but his sons didn't follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, your sons are, oh, sorry, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when, they, uh, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected. They have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. All right, so this portion of Scripture, this portion of God's word, sort of, there's a turn in the road. And don't miss, don't gloss over the statement where it says, now appoint to us as a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Remember that God has called his people to be a unique people, a people through whom a blessing would come to all nations. He called them to be unique, to be in this unique relationship with him, to be a unique nation so they would in fact bless all the other nations. And now here you've got the Israelites saying, we don't want that. Actually, we don't want to be unique. We want to be like all the other nations. And it's easy for me from this vantage point to look back and think, man, those people are, whatever, fill in the adjective, stupid. Why did they do that? That's ridiculous. Like, except if I'm honest, there's a strong temptation to want to fit in, I think. Um, this isn't probably your story, but it is Mine, it's some of our stories. We're not from Canada originally, so I came to Canada from England. Um, I'm partially British, I guess. I was born and grew up in England, although my family's Dutch. But I came to Canada with a... You wouldn't know that I came from England because I don't sound British anymore. Because I came in grade 8, I was like 12 years old. And one of the most annoying things to me at a 12-year-old was going to school and like, oh, ask Renus the question. Because they all just wanted me to talk. So they'd hear my really cool accent. And I didn't know anybody in this country. And the last thing I wanted to do was to stand out. I wanted to fit in. And they're like, oh, ask the new kid, because he sounds different. I didn't want to sound different. I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be just like them. All right? It's pretty benign. It doesn't matter. But what? it's the same thing. <laughs> that's going on in this text. They're looking around at the other nations. They're going, we don't want to be different. 
We don't want to stand out. We actually want to be just like these other nations. And sadly, it's not as benign as my circumstance. Uh, what God articulates to Samuel is they're rejecting me. They're rejecting their call, actually, to be a blessing to other nations. And what we get then in books of Samuel and Kings is really a sad litany of how the story unfolds. And you get some detailed stories of Saul and David in the books of Samuel. And then uh, in the books of Kings, you get a little bit on Solomon. And then it gives way to this sort of new cycle. So you had this cycle in Judges, and you get a new cycle in Kings, where it's, you know, this king uh, came to the throne, and he reigned for 32 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's all it says. And then this king came to the throne, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it moves on. And this king came to the throne, and he followed the ways of the Lord. And the story writer is really only concerned about that. Did they follow the covenant? Did they keep the terms of the covenant? Were they faithful or not? They don't really report on the king's building projects or or conquests or whatever. They're not concerned about the things that I might be interested in. They're primarily concerned with, were these kings faithful or not? And many of them were not. vast majority of them were not, actually. And so the, the, the story, as the story of Israel moves forward, um, it eventually, the nation of Israel splits into two. The civil war uh, breaks into two territories. The northern kingdom, which, as you read the Bible, will be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which will be referred to as Judah. And uh, none of the northern kings, like zero, of them are, are faithful to the covenant. They're all, they all did evil, and they set up other shrines and whatnot, and, and eventually the Assyrians come in and conquer Israel and deport the people, and then about 150 years later, the same fate befall, uh, falls on the southern kingdom, and Jew, Israel's destroyed, actually, and completely scattered. It's a very sad tale of human leaders turning away from God and turning their people away from God. And it's during this time, and I'll just say this as a kind of a side comment, but it's during this time of Israel's history that the prophets emerge. Uh, first, you get what is sometimes referred to as, the, as the, the talking prophets or the preaching prophets. That'd be like Elijah and Elisha and Samuel. They don't write down things. They speak to the people. And then you get the writing prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And uh, they start, they appear during this period of Israel's history primarily to call the people back to the covenant, right? All these kings are breaking the covenant and God is calling them back. And I just reference the prophets because uh, as we close this portion of our preaching series, the story of Israel, next week in Advent, as we begin to look forward to uh, Jesus coming or coming again even, um, we're going to pick up the prophets as our, as our biblical literature, uh, Isaiah in particular, um, and listen into how the prophets speak to uh, the Israelites of the time and how that message continues to echo out. So how do we read? We're talking about how we read Scripture. How, this is a huge chunk of Scripture, from essentially from the book of Judges all the way through to First and Second Kings, this huge narrative arc of the history of Israel. And we could just say, well, it's sort of the history of Israel, kind of like I could go to the library, at least in theory. I think I could still go to the library, and I can get out a book on Churchill and read about Churchill and go, oh, what's going on in England during that time or, or in Europe? And, 
And we could just sort of read it as sort of dis- detached history, somebody else's story that I can just learn about. And you could read this portion of scripture that way, um, and to some degree that's true, it is their story. But I wonder if there's something else here as well for us. All right? There's the possibility, I think, that these stories reveal something fundamental about who God is and how God works through human history that's really important for us to be attentive to. Remember, we talked about very early on we introduced this series about the Bible being a God-breathed story that points to Jesus. And it reveals some of who God is and it reveals some of how God works in history. And these stories, as we pay attention to them, tell us some important things actually about how God works in history. It actually says some important things about human nature as well that we could pay attention to. So let me say a couple things about that. I think I would maybe just want to say that the books of Samuel and particularly the books of Kings sort of function as a bit of a cautionary tale. There is um, temptation to sort of fall fall off both edges of the road here. Probably the more likely temptation for us is to put too much value on human leadership. That we think, oh, you know, if we only just vote for the right person, we get the right person in office, then, then our country will be better off. And I know this is true because political conversation can be very animated. People have really strong views on this, on who they think the right person will be to lead the country in the right way. And we can, can start thinking that human leaders on their own will get us there. And I think Kings and Samuel, these stories might just be a bit of a cautionary tale to say, I'm not so sure. Human leaders, well, humans, in, humans in, in general, all humans, but in this case, human leaders are a mixed bag. All right, they're deeply flawed. Even David, who gets described curiously enough, I think, as a man after God's own heart, is implicated in an assassination of, of a guy and steals his wife and commits adultery. Right? Hardly fits my picture of a man, a person after God's own heart. Like tragically flawed people is the story you get. And so I think we just might want to be mindful that human leaders um, have limitations and not expect unrealistic things from human leaders, or at least human leaders on their own initiatives, uh, because humans are flawed people. We, this, the Bible actually is very honest on this point. Uh, humans left to their own devices, the story goes south very quickly. Um, it's what took place right in the gardens where we started the story. God created a good creation. It is good. But in the fall, humanity decided, oh, we're going to venture out on our own without God. We figure we know what's good and bad for ourselves without God. And this, is, this story continues to play out here in First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, these books Um, And it continues to play out in our world as well, actually. This isn't just ancient history. Um, I know we don't typically think of kings and queens anymore, unless you happen to be watching The Crown, and then you might be thinking of queens, but uh, I digress. Um, 
So that's one side of the road we could fall off of. One, the other side I think we might slip off is this idea that, well, if humans are tragically flawed and, and we can't put any stock really in human leadership, then we just need to trust that God will do it on his own. And we can kind of check out of the story and kind of adopt a very passive stance and just wait for God to show up and make it all right again. And that sounds good. It's pretty attractive, actually, because uh, then I could go sit on an island somewhere, which sounds really attractive, uh, and, and sort of check out of the story. But that's actually, if you carefully read the story, it's not how God's redemption plays out. So despite, despite the fact that the hum, humans in the story are flawed people, God remarkably doesn't give up on the human. God uses humans in the story to move the salvation story forward. So the aforementioned David, the man after God's own heart, who plotted, well, he stole this guy's wife, Bathsheba, you know this story, and then plotted the assassination of her husband, out of that relationship comes the birth line of Jesus, remarkably. And you're like, what just happened there? And so God, it, this is a remarkable, this is good news. When you read this story, it can feel very depressing. You're like, wow, these people are just, they're not faithful. They don't pay attention. But the good news in the story is that God's purposes still prevail. And God is committed to his outcomes, but he's also committed to using humans to get him there. And God doesn't give up on humanity. And I think this is tremendously good news, actually. This is, this is, in this story, it's always been how God wants to bring about salvation, is through humans. Okay, it's how God brings about his salvation. So those are some things I think I want you to be uh, aware of as you read this portion of Scripture. But I want to just point out one piece, and it, it sort of riffs off the second point I just made in God's commitment to using humans in the story. And embedded in this story, we get this um, declaration. It's by Nathan the prophet, one of the preaching prophets. And Nathan is a prophet during the time of David. And early on in David's reign, Nathan approaches David and gives him this promise. I'm just reading a small section from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, so this is deeply embedded in the story of David here. And this is Nathan addressing David. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, or dynasty. And when your days are over, you will rest with your ancestors, but I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. Likely a reference here to David's son Solomon. He is the one who will build a house for my name, right? He'll build the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. So there's discipline involved. But listen, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house, David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so embedded in this narrative, we get this covenant. So God makes covenants. We've talked about that. Here now God is making a covenant with David, promising David 
that his kingdom, his throne will endure forever, forever. That there will always be a son of David on the throne. And this theme gets picked up by the prophets who develop this idea of there's going to come a future king. Um, later on, gets referred to a messianic king, a messiah, a savior king. And when Jesus enters and after Jesus um, ascends to heaven, the New Testament writers capture this theme and they clearly identify that Jesus is that king. Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Jesus is the king that has been promised, the fulfillment of this prophecy. All right, they sometimes, they didn't, I mean, they use the word king somewhat, and the ascension story isn't just some weird story about Jesus floating off into the clouds. The ascension story, the New Testament writers are clear on this. It's Jesus ascending to his throne where he will reign. In heaven, and Jesus has prayed and, and declares that God's kingdom in heaven is coming to earth. That Jesus' reign will one day be full on earth as well. That's what's pictured there. And they sometimes use the term king. They often use the term Lord. Jesus is Lord. So let me just pause here and just ask the question, what does this mean? Like, who cares, right? Or you probably in theory care, but in practicality, what difference does this make? Like I said, we don't really, I mean, we live in a monarchy, in theory, in Canada, um, and it shows up in occasional ways, uh, usually when you're becoming a citizen of Canada, it'll show up in language and a few other things, but um, I mean, if you do watch The Crown, uh, that might be the first time you've actually thought about the queen and the monarchy. And it, uh, one of the things you might conclude is they seem kind of out of touch with the reality you live in. Um, so what difference does it make when we say Jesus is king? Right? Susan talked about this. In the Christian calendar, when that was developed, the last day of the Christian year, this Sunday, before we switch back to a new year, Advent, this day is Christ the King Sunday. We, we pause and say, the whole story has culminated here. It turns out the good news isn't just that Jesus is Savior and he saved us from sin. That is part of the good news, but it's part of the good news. This other part that we need to wrestle with a little bit is Jesus is Lord. He's not just Savior, he is Lord. And what difference does Jesus' lordship make, Jesus' kingship? Well, let me offer, just to kind of prime the pump, I'm going to leave that. It's a big question. I think it's one, as Christians, worth asking. If Jesus is king, what does that mean? Let me prime the pump a little bit and just give you a, a couple suggestions, okay? This is not an exhaustive list by any stretch. I'm going to give you three suggestions and we'll wrap it up. The first thing I might say is if we actually believe that Jesus is king, then I think the first invitation is for us to bow down before him. Again, I mean, my reference points to kings and queens right now is watching the crown, and whenever somebody approaches the queen, they bow out of respect and presumably reverence and acknowledging that the queen is sovereign. 
Well, here we've got a story that boldly proclaims that Jesus is king. And I think the first posture, perhaps, that I take before that king is one of surrender, that I bow. And this is now the reversal of the sin in the garden where, where Adam and Eve say, well, God, we're going out on our own. We think we know what's right. We don't actually want to bow to your wishes and your will. We're going to do something our own. This is a reversal of that, where we say, God, I take my will, my dreams, my plans, indeed my whole life, and I bow, I surrender to you. Right? This is what gets picked up in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my kingdom, not my will, but I surrender to yours. And you see this um, enacted or or lived out in the life of Jesus in the garden. God, if there's any possible way to sort of deviate from this path, I really don't want to hang on a cross. But in the end, not my will, but yours be done. And this is, I think, the invitation to not just receive Jesus as Savior, by all means we need to do that. We need to be invited into the salvation story, but we also need to wrestle with and say yes to Jesus as Lord. And so we need to spend some time maybe considering what does that mean to bow before Jesus, to surrender my will, my plans, my life, to God's will, God's plan. God's life in me. That'd be my first suggestion for you to sort of explore surrendering. Uh, Not popular, by the way, (laughs) in our culture. Uh, The second thing I would want to say is, is I think the New Testament writers are really clear on this point as well, that the idea of Jesus being king is really, really, really good news. It's amazing news that Jesus is Lord. And we're invited to rejoice in response. That there is actually somebody other than me who's in charge is tremendously freeing. I tend to live with this, um, my personality type, and if you're familiar with the Enneagram, um, you know, I'm a one, I'm a perfectionist. I tend to think it's my responsibility to get everything fixed. And I hold that, and I lose sleep over that. And it's not, you know, it doesn't always play out in bad ways, but sometimes it does. And I have this sort of overly, sort of, I don't know, whatever. I, responsibility just sort of weighs on me heavily. But if I can lean into this, Jesus is king, it's still, I'm still involved in the story. I don't check out, remember. But if I can trust that God is in charge, wow. Listen to what Frederick Beekner says on this. I've read part of this before, but I'll just pick up this one phrase. He says, what Jesus seems to be saying when he's talking about the kingdom, what Jesus seems to be saying is that the kingdom of God is a time, or, or perhaps a time beyond time, when it is no longer humans in their lunacy who are in charge of the world, but God in his mercy who will be in charge of the world. It is a time above all else for wild Rejoicing. Wow. I, that just caught me again this week as I reread. Wild rejoicing. 
God's in charge. It doesn't look like it. I get it. It feels like the world's sort of spinning off in who knows what direction some days. And it's not always clear how it is that God's in charge. But if we remember that our story is embedded in this larger God narrative where the God story is moving toward new creation, and one day God's rule, as it is in heaven, will be on earth, we're part of that story, then we can rejoice. There is at least a sense or a possibility of rejoicing. Let me just, one last thing on rejoicing. I'm not asking you to conjure something up, like, woo, let's be happy and let's bang a drum loud and whatever, drink a glass of wine and try and, like, woo. I'm not, that's not, I think, what I mean at all. Um, Rejoicing or joy is a fruit of the Spirit. This is something that God uh, creates within me. It's not of my own doing. So any more than, like, the first point is surrender. It's, it's sort of like I'm laying myself down and opening myself up to God and saying, God, it's you. In this sense, I am opening myself up to God, to joy, and saying, God, is you. Create within me a joy that is a fruit of your spirit. It's something that you well within me as I trust that you are king. All right? So... God's doing both of these, really. My third point, and I'll leave it here, is to use our imagination. Um, And this really opens it up for you to develop other things as you think about Jesus being king. Um, As I said, we live in this kind of, well, I mean, the biblical story is a confused Uh, there's many times of confusion and anxiety and uncertainty, and yet God's purposes are woven through that somehow, remarkably. Can I trust that in my own time of uncertainty and confusion and anxiety that God's purposes are woven through? Can I trust that God is king, as he always has been? And and then start using my imagination then, what what would that mean? How might I live different? Um, I, I thought about all kinds of stories I could tell here. I'm just going to, in the end, I just circle back to Jesus. So Jesus not only proclaims God's kingdom is at hand, but then he lives like it. So pay attention to Jesus. And look what he did. So Jesus, there's a great story. I won't read it. In, it's, it's pretty short, actually. But Jesus um, is confronted by a man who has leprosy. And leprosy were, people with leprosy at that time were completely cut off from community and for society because uh, there was a lot of misconceptions about that disease and how it could be, uh, how you could spread that disease and all of that. So they just basically cast them out. And this leper approaches Jesus and asks to be healed. Now Jesus, he's God, right? He could say, sure, be healed. But what does he do? He reaches out and he touches. That's I mean, we can begin to see how powerful that is in our time, right? When it's so difficult to touch people right now in a pandemic. And Jesus reaches out and touches, and it's powerful. And Jesus is doing far more than healing the guy's body. Right? That's the first time this guy's been touched since he had leprosy. I don't know, five years, ten years, fifteen years? Can you imagine some of you haven't, you know, we don't hug, we don't shake hands, we don't arm around the shoulder anymore. We haven't done that for eight months. What about eight years? Without human touch. 
And Jesus deliberately touches this man and heals him. And he's using his imagination to say, this is what the kingdom looks like. It looks like radical inclusion. People who've been cast out are going to be embraced. And I'm willing to touch them. I'm not afraid to be thought of as unclean. In fact, Jesus' cleanliness gets transferred to the man, not the other way around. And it invites me, that kind of story invites me to say, what would it look like for me? Who are the lepers in my world? Who might I touch? Okay, and it may at this time not be physical touch. You'll have to sort that out on your own. But what does it look like to have that kind of imagination as I interact with people in our world, in our time? Let me leave you here with a Frederick, another Frederick Beekner quote. He was clearly a, uh, a good companion this week um, as I prepared this. This is where I want to leave you. Um, and I love this little quote here. He says, Humanly speaking, if we have any chance to survive, I suspect that it is men and women who act out of that deep impulse, that deep longing, that deep belief that Jesus is king. We cannot make the kingdom of God happen, all right? That's God's doing. God establishes his kingdom. We cannot make the kingdom of God happen. But we can put out leaves as it draws near. We can be kind to each other. We can be kind to ourselves. We can drive back the darkness a little. We can make green places within ourselves and among ourselves where God can make his kingdom happen. Friends, this morning, what would it be like for you to spread out leaves, to open yourself up to the possibility that Jesus is king? I invite you to, you can reflect on that further. There's a practice on our website on that, on Sermons Plus. Um, If you're still wanting to think further, I've photocopied a chapter from N.T. Wright's book, Simply Jesus. It's the final chapter of this book. So you can skip the whole book and read just the last chapter that's online, um, simply called Jesus, the Ruler of the World. And N.T. Wright's trying to wrestle with, what does that mean? The very question we're asking here. Okay? Friends, spread out wings, or wings, leaves. And believe that this is true. And believe that it's good news that Jesus is king. Let me pray. And then I'm going to uh, invite Toru virtually. Uh, Toru is one of our missionaries. Uh, works out in the Sudan and Kenya and that region of the world. Um, and he just has a, a song that's beautiful. And we'll use it as a part of our reflection. So let me pray. And then the song. Jesus, you are king. And I confess that I don't think about that a lot. Um, But perhaps I should. Because it is good news that you're in charge. That you're still in charge. And that you're moving the story forward as you move the Israelite story forward. You're still at work in human history. You work in us. And you work through us.
So may we spread out leaves. May we encourage green spaces where your kingdom can come, where your will could be done here in Calgary as it is in heaven.